the Lean Out Podcast has just celebrated its 50th episode. So today, for episode 51, we have a special Canada-themed show for you. We're going to be hearing from a much-respected Canadian broadcaster who's written a riveting biography about a much-admired Canadian politician, former Prime Minister John Turner. And as we take a trip back in time, hearing about John Turner's role in the invocation of the War Measures Act and his liaison with Princess Margaret, my guest on the podcast today will reflect on how things have changed between Turner's time and our own, in both media and in politics. And we'll hear why we need a more civil culture of debate in this country, now more than ever. I think we got to learn how to disagree in a more agreeable way. You know, I think that's the bottom line. People have got to be able to gather either in the public square or during election campaigns or, for goodness sakes, as guests on a current affairs program. And they have got to learn how to be, how to disagree without being disagreeable. Steve Pakin is a Canadian journalist and the host of TVO's flagship current affairs program, The Agenda with Steve Pakin. He's also the author of John Turner, an intimate biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister. That book is out later this month. Steve Pakin is my guest today on Lean Out. Steve, welcome to Lean Out. Tara, thank you very much. Delighted to be with you. Very happy to have you on. This is such a fascinating book, and there are quite a lot of parallels to today, actually. The book opens with John Turner's death in 2020, and that's where I'd like to start today as well. The Globe and Mail ran the headline, former Prime Minister John Turner, who was in office for just 11 weeks, dies, aged 91. A lot of people were very upset by that headline. Uh, You knew John Turner. How did you react? I guess I'm with them. Uh, I understand that headline writers have to try to encapsulate a great deal of information in just very few words. But, but the notion that the most important thing about this man's life was the fact that he was the second shortest serving prime minister of all time, I didn't think was uh, accurate. I mean, it's accurate. He was the second shortest serving prime minister of all time behind only Charles Tupper. Uh, but the reality is he was a superstar cabinet minister in the 1960s. He became the leader of the official opposition uh, in two elections which were truly groundbreaking and historic in the 1980s. He was prime minister going into the first one, and then he was opposition leader going into the second one, that free trade election in 1988. So there were a lot of things that happened in his life uh, that were far more important, actually, than than being prime minister for a short period of time. And I suspect if you asked him, he would have have told you that um, being PM didn't crack the top five, six, or seven things he did with his life. So so, yeah, I, I thought uh, I get why they did it, but I didn't love it either. Mm. And let's talk about how you got involved in, in telling the story. You're the host of a popular, I'm sure, very demanding current affairs show. We're in the middle of a global pandemic at that time, likely the biggest news event of all of our careers. What compelled you to then take on this book project? Well, you're quite right. Uh, John Turner died in September of 2020. So we're sort of uh, six months or so into COVID-19. And yeah, it was certainly the biggest story uh, in a long time. And I frankly didn't really want to do this book, Tara. I, I had just finished a book on former Ontario Premier Bill Davis, which ran 600 pages, which took a lot out of me. And I was certainly not looking for another book project. 
But a couple of Mr. Turner's colleagues approached me after he died. So I guess we're talking now October of 2020. And they said, we really think there's a good book to be written about John Turner, the man, uh, as opposed to sort of uh, the politician, uh, a more intimate biography of his life, including more on his personal life. Mm. Uh, they said to me, you knew him. Our birthdays were two days apart. So we used to go for lunch on our, around the time of our birthdays every year. And his son lived across the road from me. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, maybe I can present a bit of a different take on his life based on my knowledge of him. And not only that, but, but I knew his family a little bit, and they were very kind to give me access uh, to his private papers uh, at the archives in Ottawa. And they also did extensive interviews with me, which previous authors also had not had access to. So I thought, add it all up, and I don't know, maybe I do have something new to say about him. Mm. And I like the way you break that down, you know, the man versus the politician. And this is a very intimate book. So let's start with the man. John Turner, he began his life full of material advantages, but many emotional disadvantages, including the loss of his father very young. Give us a bit of a snapshot of John Turner's early life and how you think that shaped his character. Well, the, the material advantages and the privilege that he would ultimately come to have in his life certainly didn't start at the very beginning. He was two. When his father died, uh, his father died of a botched operation. They were, you know, he was born in England and the family was living in the UK at the time. And not only that, but he, there, there's another sibling that didn't make it either. Uh, there was a, a, a baby that was born uh, who died, I think, a, a matter of a mere days after being born. So it was an incredibly tragic time for Mr. Turner's mother. Phyllis was her name. And you know, she, she lost her husband and a child within a relatively short space of time and therefore uh, decided to move back to British Columbia, where her family was from originally, and start all over again. And it, it wasn't until she moved back to Canada that their life started to get better organized and, and that uh, John Turner would eventually have the opportunity to meet important people because his mother was a, the highest ranking female civil servant in the country. And then things took off. But his life certainly started under very, very tragic circumstances. He never knew his father. Mm. Now, mind you, I asked his sister, Brenda, who's still alive. She's 90 years old. And I asked her, you know, what was it like not having a dad? And she said, well, you got to remember, we grew up during World War II and nobody had a dad, right? Everybody's dad was away. So, yes, on the one hand, uh, nobody had a father present in their lives at that time. But on the other hand, you know, some of... Some of his friends' fathers did come back from fighting in World War II. And of course, his father, he would never come to know. Mm. And how do you think that shaped him? Well, it, it, profoundly in many ways. Uh, first and foremost, he, he became friends with a lot of people who were much older than him uh, during the course of his legal at first and then political career and then business career after that. Uh, for whatever reason, he, you know, like Quebec Premier Morton Duplessis, uh, became a friend, even though there was maybe 30 years difference. And there would be other uh, members of the clergy, for example, in his life. He was a staunch Catholic who would be 20 and 30 years older than him. I think of GM at Cardinal Carter, who was a very famous and highly regarded figure in the Catholic Church in Toronto back in the day. He would take on these friendships. And I guess there was some sort of speculation that they were replacement father figures for him because he didn't have a father in his life. 
And then, of course, he eventually, his mother did remarry and he did have a stepfather, but the two of them were never particularly close. And the stepfather was, let's say, quite a disciplinarian with young John. And therefore, whatever close potential relationship uh, he might have had with a father figure in his life, he didn't have it. And you just have to assume that that played out in myriad ways throughout the course of his life. Mm. Now, you've, you've referred to him as RJFK. He was elected in 1962 in his early 30s, kind of a golden boy in Canadian politics. He's this former world-class athlete. He's quite handsome, as everyone remarks. He's also hugely well-connected, very well-liked. All of this, of course, came with gossip. What do we know about his relationship with Princess Margaret? Oh, yeah, I thought you were going to go there. Okay, his father, his stepfather ends up becoming Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia. And Princess Margaret ends up on a royal tour of BC. And the Lieutenant Governor asks his stepson, John Turner, if he wouldn't mind chaperoning the princess around for a while. And they spend an evening together dancing and everybody's tongue was wagging at, the, as you point out, the gossip that that created and it made all the newspapers and it was a very big deal. So it no doubt kickstarted John Turner's presence as a major figure on the sort of political scene of the country and the social scene of the country. But it also started cottage industries over the years of of gossip about the nature of their relationship, which was highlighted many years later when the princess's private letters were published and she fessed up that John Turner, now married with children, was coming to visit her. And she said in a letter to a friend, And to think I almost married the guy back in the day. So (laughs) it was a very, very close relationship. And there's some funny stories in the book that um, that he never told people for publication, but which now that he's gone, I have uh, very indelicately published in the book that that really do describe what the true nature of their relationship was. And I will leave that juicy gossip for those who want to read the book. (laughs) Now, there was also some suggestion that he may have spent some time with Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, let's put it this way. Men loved Mr. Turner. Mr. Turner loved men. Women loved Mr. Turner. Mr. Turner loved women. He was, you know, you, you said it right at the top. He, he was our JFK. You know, Kennedy sworn in as president in 1961. Turner gets elected for the first time in 62. They're both young, dashing men. Kennedy, I think, 43 when he becomes president, or maybe even four. Yeah, 43. John Turner, 33, maybe, when he gets elected for the first time, becomes a very young cabinet minister not too long thereafter. So, you know, people have got their eye on these two guys, and the similarities between the two of them were pretty obvious. And he did through his father-in-law. His father-in-law did business with the Kennedys. And so he came to know and socialize with the Kennedy family in New England. And so he was, I know he was asked this numerous times, he would never be specific about whether he and Marilyn how close they were, let's put it that way. But they had the pleasure of each other's company, whatever that means, uh, (laughs) at some point in their lives together. (laughs) So uh, I want to ask one more question about his personal life before we move on to his politics. So his wife, he ultimately gets married. His wife, Jill, becomes uh, one of the most important people in his life. She, in fact, took the photo for the cover of your book. But she had a bit of a strained relationship with the press and it was kind of a bit of a difficult personality sometimes. You know, at, at one point in the book, you recount how she was effectively politely banned from a campaign plane. <laughs> Very strong personality. You didn't shy away from that, even though you had all of this access to the family. 
No, and I and she would agree with that. I mean, she doesn't sanction fools uh, easily. She's a very you gotta remember, I think she's born in 1937. And she she's a woman who was working at IBM in her 20s. Uh, she's a person who, had she been born 20 years later, might very well have been a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Her daughter and I had a wonderful conversation in which uh, she admits that Mrs. Turner had one daughter and three sons, and that daughter Elizabeth admitted that you know she not, doesn't have the most maternal instincts. That's not necessarily where, where she goes. She's an incredibly powerful force, an incredibly strong woman, very looked out for her husband uh, in a major way when he was in politics uh, did not like the you know when the when the media wrote nasty stories about uh, Mr. Turner you can bet that Mrs. Turner was not happy about that and i know there is this tendency there is this tendency to portray her as somehow the bad guy in the whole John Turner political story and yeah there might be some truth to that but the other side of the coin is you know she just was not one of those and i don't mean this in a pejorative way but just so you'll understand what i'm saying she wasn't one of those Nancy Reagan types who just sort of stayed in the background and, you know, looked gazingly with that look on her face at her husband in public. You know, she was her own person and she did, she, you know, she didn't love the fact that he was in public life, particularly when he made his comeback in 1984. They had a great life together in Toronto in the middle 70s. He was making a fortune in business. He was a hot director for boards of directors. And, and she gave all that up to see him go back to become the leader of the opposition. Mm. You know, so I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for her position. Let's put it that way. Mm. And he did take quite a bit of abuse from, from within his own party as well, which we'll oh get my to. Gosh. But, mm-hmm. Oof, did he ever? Yeah. Let's talk about his career. There's just some really huge standout moments to dive into here. Um, Turner was, of course, Pierre Trudeau's justice minister during criminal code reform, decriminalizing abortion and homosexuality. This is the period Trudeau famously said the state has no business in people's bedrooms. John Turner did this despite being a devout Catholic. How big a part of his political legacy do you see this as being? Oh, uh, put put that. I mean, I wouldn't put his prime ministership at the top of the list. I'd put this at the top of the list. I mean, these are things that have had, as the expression goes, political legs. This is stuff that has lasted forever. Uh, it was illegal to have an abortion in Canada before John Turner was the justice minister. It was illegal to be openly gay in this country uh, until John Turner was the justice minister. Uh, his predecessor as justice minister was Pierre Trudeau. Pierre Trudeau tried to get these reforms through the parliament that was led by Prime Minister Lester Pearson and could not do it. John Turner got it done. Two reasons. Number one, he had a way of dealing with his opponents that was disarming and in which he was able to try to get as much buy-in as possible. He didn't see people on the other side of the floor of the House of Commons as enemies. He saw them as political adversaries and opponents who needed to be won over, but he certainly didn't see them as enemies. And of course, having a majority government instead of a minority government, as Pearson had, was no doubt helpful as well. But I think the story of of that criminal code reform, I think the big story is Mr. Turner was a staunch Catholic. And, you know, personally, he would have been opposed to abortion. And personally, he would not have been a fan of homosexuality. But his own personal views, he was able to shunt those to the side because, number one, uh, the prime minister of the day, Pierre Trudeau, said this is the right thing to do. And I think Mr. Turner understood the difference between his own personal views and and what the government perceived to be in the best interests of the country at the time. Mm. And so he did it. And, and, you know, here we are 
oh, gosh, how many years? I mean, it's more than 50 years later. And those reforms have stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. So interesting. And he was also justice minister during the October crisis, uh, oh, yes. which saw the invocation of the War Measures Act. Interestingly, he did raise questions about its impact on democracy and the precedent it might set going forward. When you're writing this, how did you think through Turner's objections, given what was happening in our country with the Emergencies Act? Yeah, isn't that an interesting question? Uh, because, yes, it was the first Prime Minister Trudeau who brought in the War Measures Act, and it was the second Prime Minister Trudeau who brought in the Emergencies Act, and they were very, very different circumstances. I mean, let's go back 50-plus years to 1970, October of 1970. The British Trade Commissioner is kidnapped. A Quebec cabinet minister, Pierre Laporte, is murdered. There are bombs blowing up in mailboxes all over Quebec as the separatist organization, the FLQ, the Front de Libération du Québec, is increasingly flexing its muscles for an independent Quebec, Quebec as its own country. So the circumstances are, I mean, there were no jumpy castles or hot tubs, uh, you know, that the FLQ was using back then as there were when the convoy was making its mischief more recently. These were very, very scary times 52 years ago. And And the cabinet gathered together, pushed through the War Measures Act, Mr. Turner, you're quite right, making sure that there were safeguards put in place, that there was a sunset clause to this, that parliament would have to be regularly updated as to where things stood. There was an attempt to get the leaders of the opposition on side for the War Measures Act as well. And I think it was a good thing that Canada had John Turner as the justice minister at the time. Somebody who, if if you were going to trample over, which is in effect what happened. There were lots, hundreds of people arrested on very slim evidence. Uh, but it, it was good that you had somebody with a, with a democratic heart who worried about civil rights in the justice portfolio at the time to make sure that uh, further abuses of civil rights did not happen. You know, I, all those years later, I'm convinced that he felt he made the right decision to support the War Measures Act with the provisos in place that, that put caps on it. But I, I can't imagine he loved doing it. You know, it was sort of one of these necessary evils because the times, in their judgment, called for it. Mm. The moment that we're in now, I wanted to ask a little bit about that. I mean, did it seem reminiscent for you as you're as you're writing this book that there's so much that is similar? Inflation is high. You talk about inflation in the book. The Emergencies Act gets triggered at. You talk about that in the book. There was incredibly polarized political moments throughout the book. We're in a moment of huge polarization. What parallels did you see? Well, all of those and more. I mean, you're, you're quite right. It, there's this old expression, you know, everything old is new again. And that was certainly the case here. Yeah, I mean, even the fact that a guy named Trudeau was the prime minister in both circumstances. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of eerie how, how often this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those similarities are, are really very intriguing. And John Turner was a strong justice minister at the time. He had the prime minister's confidence. Uh, If Pierre Trudeau was the most important political figure in the country, and in particular in French Canada, John Turner was the most important English cabinet minister among Anglophone Canadians. And I don't know that we have that kind of similar situation in Canada today. You know, Justin Trudeau, obviously the most important political figure in the country today. I'd be hard pressed to think if, I mean, I haven't done a survey on this, but Could 5% of Canadians name who the justice minister is today, Mm -hmm. in whose name the Emergencies Act was presumably passed? I doubt it. 
Now, that may have a lot more to do with the fact that government is so much more centralized nowadays. And, you know, it's really only the prime minister that gets any attention and maybe some days the finance minister. But people knew who John Turner was back then. They knew who he was during the FLQ crisis because he was the justice minister. And they certainly knew who he was thereafter in the early 70s when he became the finance minister. And here we go again with more parallels with very stubborn inflation and with lots of attempts to get inflation down and big deficits and really you know, throwing all sorts of ideas and stuff at the wall and not really sure that any of it's sticking. Mm. I did want to spend a moment on free trade as well. John mm-hmm. Turner was against the free trade agreement. Uh, this is an issue in Canadian politics, which as you point out in the book, it's still somewhat up for debate as to whether this was a net positive for the country. Turner famously called out international trade minister John Crosby, who had not even read it. I found that detail quite astonishing. Well, it was a 1,300-page agreement, so I... You know, I can understand why he hadn't read every page of it, but John Turner did. He That's didn't right. Page of it. He did indeed. And and Turner said, quote, I'm not going to let Mr. Mulroney destroy a great 120-year-old dream called Canada. He, he did pay a price for this on Bay Street when he left politics. Why do you think that issue was so important to him? John Turner was not opposed to free trade. He certainly believed, he understood Canada was a trading nation, and he certainly understood the need for... Canada to have strong, robust trading relationships with uh, the American government and with American states and American businesses and so on. That was not his problem. His problem was he read the agreement and he just thought the agreement that Mr. Mulroney had come to with Ronald Reagan and the American side wasn't good. He thought that we were giving up too much. He thought that rather than create a country where the real business relationships are east-west, that we would because of this agreement, create a situation where a north-south flow would be the main thing. And he didn't want that. He wanted a country where, you know, people in Quebec and British Columbia knew each other better than Quebecers knew people from Vermont or British Columbians knew people from Washington State. That's what he was going for. He he preferred east-west ties to north-south ties. And so he opposed the agreement. And you're quite right that, that the business community wanted this agreement. Most of the country wanted the agreement. Ontario was notable in its opposition, but Quebec was in favor of the free trade agreement. And as a result of his opposing the agreement, when he eventually did leave politics in the 1990s, uh, you know, the welcome mat was not out for him in the way that it was when he retired the first time in 1975. He had this famous falling out with Trudeau in 1975. He resigned as finance minister and Bay Street just couldn't wait to get to him. Um, They were competing for the right to sign him up to their law firm, to their boards of directors and so on. Not the case when he retired in 1992. 93, I guess he officially stopped being an MP. Uh, So he put his money where his mouth was. It affected his bottom line financially, but that's just what he believed. He believed the agreement was a bad one. And so he fought it with all his energy. Mm. And his political downfall, I mean, part of that his fate was sort of sealed in this debate with Brian Mulroney over over this patronage scandal. But there were other real bumps in that campaign, including the way he behaved with women. And in the time he'd been away from politics on Bay Street, women had entered politics in much greater numbers. There was a feeling he didn't interact appropriately, often sort of patting them on the rear end to signal a job well done, which, which he did with men too. But how much do you think that hurt him? That's hard to say because, you know, there were... I guess there were people in two different camps on this. There were certainly people who believed that when John Turner made his comeback to public life in 1984, 
that he'd spent a decade out of the public eye to a great extent on Bay Street in a very macho business-like environment and had missed a lot of the increasing participation of women in the workforce and the less tolerance that women and many others were starting to, to demand of the kinds of things you talk about there, bum padding and sexist comments and a lot of the stuff that would have would have passed for okay in, in some circles before that, but was now, you know, really not, not appropriate anymore. And yes, you're quite right. There were some, and I quote, uh, quote some in the book of some women who uh, he used to pat on the bum and they didn't think anything of it. That was his way of being, you know, jock. He, he was a real jock, you know, he was a real jock. He was a tactile guy. So he just thought patting someone on the bum didn't matter if it was a man or a woman. He just saw that as making them feel like a part of the team. But society had, you know, a lot of society had moved on at that point, and that kind of behavior just wasn't, you know, wasn't acceptable anymore. And when he got caught on camera doing it to the president of the Liberal Party, who was Iona Campanolo, a woman, and she was taken aback, there's no doubt about it, and she patted him right back on the butt. And his response to that was to say, I bet you've been waiting to do that for a long time. Like he was still sort of stuck in that macho BS. And she looked at him and said, no, not really. And I think that surprised <laughs> him because you know, he was a good looking guy. And, you know, and as far as he was concerned, a lot of women did want to pat him on the bum uh-huh. and more. But there you go. He learned the hard way that some of that stuff was just really out of date. And it was one of a number of examples of things he did that just seemed looking to the past instead of to the future. The kinds of clothes he wore were very much suits out of the 1950s and 60s, not the 1980s. The expressions he used uh, when he campaigned in that election, he would talk. He went to Thunder Bay and he talked about C.D. Howe, who was a politician who was very famous 40 years earlier. You know, uh, most of the people he was talking to in that stump speech that he gave in Thunder Bay wouldn't have been born when C.D. Howe was in Parliament. So uh, I don't know. It was just it was a bunch of things like that that made him look too much like yesterday's man and not enough like today's or tomorrow's man. Mm. And that's a good segue to something I wanted to ask you about. I mean, there's a point in the book where you recount being this 24 year old reporter when John Charter won the liberal leadership in 1984. And it really got me thinking about your position here. I mean, you've been a journalist for 40 years now. How how has journalism and politics changed during that time? Oh my gosh, where do I start? Well, let's put it this way. The most, the most significant change in journalism is that back then the legacy media were really in charge of everything, you know, and you were desperate to get onto the op-ed page of uh, one of the major newspapers. You, you wanted to have your story covered on the front page of the paper. I don't even know if there really is a front page of the paper anymore, given that so many more people are now reading newspapers online or they're clicking individual stories on social media, that kind of thing. To be on the front page of the Globe or the Star 40 years ago was an enormous deal if you were a politician looking for votes. I don't know that it carries the same heft today. I think we can start right there. I think there were a lot more, how would I describe this? There were a lot more giants in the press gallery back then. You know, there were people, there were people who spent their whole lives working in the Queen's Park Press Gallery or working in the Parliament Hill Press Gallery. They saw it as sort of the pinnacle of their careers to get that job. And they spent years and years there. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, I think there's a lot more, you know, this is a way station on uh, until something else comes along. So you have a lot less institutional memory among the people who cover politics nowadays, 
And I, I, I think that's probably not to the good. It's, it's um, you know, if you cover Parliament Hill today, it would be good to know. I think it'd be good to know stuff about this time in history. I think it'd be good to know that, you know, your, your institutional memory goes further back than Stephen Harper. Uh, you know, for, for a lot of journalists nowadays, that's just not the case. The toxicity that existed back then was different from the way it is today. I'm not saying it was certainly it wasn't uh, beer and Skittles back then, but you didn't have the, the horrors of social media uh, mm-hmm. that you see today. So that was one significant difference at all. And I, you know, when, when John Turner and Brian Mulroney were both running in that 1984 election, that might have been the first election where, where the press who covered the campaign, the media who covered the campaign, you know, this is all now post-Watergate. And there was a lot less chumminess between politician and reporter and a lot more of an adversarial relationship. I mean, we're a long way at this point. Put it this way. When John Turner first ran for the Liberal Party leadership in 1968, journalists wrote his speeches. You know, they'd make a little extra money on the side by writing speeches for politicians. Well, by 1984, when he was running for the leadership, when, as you point out, I was 24 years old, that practice was long gone. I mean, that was over as well. And it was a much more adversarial relationship in a post-Watergate era. And therefore, uh, you know, Brian Mulrooney got shocked when, you know, some people reported on an off-the-record discussion he had with a bunch of reporters because while he got off the record with some of the people he talked to, he didn't get off the record agreement from everybody he talked to. And he was shocked when those uh, ill-advised comments he made uh, about uh, John Turner's patronage appointments showed up on the front page of the paper. And Mm -hmm. similarly, John Turner as well felt very betrayed when some comments he made, as he said it, on the bus. Can you imagine? I was making comments to reporters on the bus, which when John Turner first came up, you know, nobody reported on what went on on the bus. That was considered off the record. You didn't have to explicitly state it. It was understood. Well, it wasn't understood when he came back in 1984. If you didn't explicitly state it was off the record, the reporters assumed it was fair game and they reported on it. And Mr. Turner was very unhappy about that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's too long an answer, but lots of changes, obviously, in the intervening years. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned the sort of toxic environment that we're in right now. Um, and I had referred to the polarization earlier. There's something I wanted to ask you about from your show um, that I ended up writing about. I've been on your show, as you know, I watch it regularly. I have a lot of respect for you and your team. The fact that you do tackle these hot button topics, that you present a range of viewpoints, which can be difficult to do right now. I wanted to ask you about this segment you did on university vaccine and mask mandates. Uh, This was with an Ontario acting medical officer of health and a family doctor. And the family doctor's position seemed to be that you shouldn't even interview the medical officer of health as his views were kind of abhorrent to her. This is sort of a new thing in journalism, this idea that you shouldn't interview someone who, or that even interviewing someone is somehow agreeing with them. I also noticed that afterwards she went on Twitter and was critical to your wife, which is something I've not seen in all of the years that I booked guests at CBC. I never saw that happen. How do you think through this sort of polarized climate we're in right now? What do you see the journalist's role in it? Well, I found the whole thing both bizarre and amusing. Bizarre because the nature that a a medical officer of health with an official job and a title and responsibilities for the health of the people in his catchment area, which in this case was the region of Haldeman, Norfolk in southwestern Ontario, the notion that we 
ought not to invite him to appear on a program because his views differ from other medical officers of health or other people involved in the COVID-19 debate, including the doctor in Ottawa that you're referring to. The notion that we should refuse to have him on a program, which after all, its main purpose is to debate the big issues of the day, I found passing strange. And I mean, I, I would have assumed that the doctor in Ottawa would have appreciated the opportunity to put this guy in his place if she thought his views were so repugnant, which she certainly tried to do. And she did in with numerous ad hominem attacks and personal attacks. And, and frankly, it was, it, well, and now we get to the part that I found amusing. Before the show started, when people on social media discovered that we had invited uh, the medical officer of health from Haldeman Norfolk to appear on the program, we were bombarded with tweets and Facebook messages and so on from people saying, how can you have that guy on? You people are so irresponsible. And then after the show had aired and people saw how the doctor in Ottawa behaved, we got the exact opposite kind of mob attack, which was, how could you have her on? She was disgraceful in her conduct and, and insulting to everybody else on the show. So, you know, it was one of those things where you can't please anybody. And I get it. As you say, I've been in this game long enough to know that there are some days you just can't please anybody, let alone everybody. But I think we got to learn how to disagree in a more agreeable way. And I think that's the bottom line. Mm. People have got to be able to gather either in the public square or during election campaigns or, for goodness sakes, as guests on a current affairs program. And they have got to learn how to be, how to disagree without being disagreeable. And you know, in, in the case of the show you referenced, the medical officer of health advanced some views, which I guess some people thought are very controversial and wrong, but he advanced them in a calm and sober way. And the guest from Ottawa, who wore a mask in her doctor's office during the course of the interview, which I asked about in a very uh, non-judgmental way, I was genuinely cur curious as to why she did that. She, you know, she, um, she disagreed in a very insulting way. She was. Uh, I don't know what else to say about it other than I, I, I was uh, taken aback by how ill-mannered she was during the course of the program. And, and as you point out, even to the extent of, of posting on social media, private email exchanges that I and another viewer of the show were having. And um, I guess there's nothing private under the sun. Uh, I, I didn't object to anything that I had said in there, but I just did not assume that that the doctor would, would post that stuff. Anyways, we need more civility in life as a general mission statement. And, and that show reminded me that uh, it's more needed now than ever. Mm, I agree completely. And just one last question uh, to close here. The current question of Canadian politics, something I know you've been watching. The Liberal Party, one of the things that also struck me as a parallel going through uh, this book is that the Liberal Party has often been criticized as, as out-of-touch elites. It's a crit critique that comes back. And we're seeing that critique gather force again now in the success of Pierre Polyev. You wrote a column after Polyev's recent landslide victory in the conservative leadership race. And you wrote that to see Polyev's growth, both personally and as a campaigner over the past many months, is to see one of the truly fascinating developments in Canadian politics of the past decade. Why did you write that? And what will you be watching for in months to come? I wrote that because after a convention is over, you're trying to find an angle that not every single other person is going to be writing about. 
And I knew the angle everybody else would be writing about would be the Conservative Party of Canada just choose, uh, you know, Donald Trump North to be its next leader. And I thought, okay, everybody else is saying that. So that viewpoint will no doubt get a good airing. The thing I'm more interested in uh, is how much maturation as a politician and a person has Pierre Polyev experienced during his time in public life. We have to remember he got elected, I think, for the first time when he was 24, 25 years old. So I think it's uh, fair to say that I think everybody hopes he has matured since, uh, since those days. I don't think any of us would want to take the sum total of our knowledge at age 24 and assume that was the way we were going to be for the rest of our lives. So that story intrigues me. And the other story that intrigues me is I have no doubt but that we have, leading the two main parties in this country right now, the two most talented, best campaigners anywhere in the country today. These two, and I'm not talking about their politics, I'm not talking about their positions on issues, I'm talking about their ability to move public opinion. And these two guys are the best at it. I mean, we saw Justin Trudeau do it in quite a spectacular way seven years ago against Stephen Harper and Thomas Mulcair in the 2015 election. We saw Pierre Polyev do it over the last year that he's been running for the conservative leadership. You know, the next election, whenever it happens, if these two are the two who will be leading their parties at the time, and I know the prime minister has said he intends to lead the party into the next election. Okay, we'll see. You know, he may, he may not. I think it's going to be one for the ages. These two are really talented on the hustings. And I'm very curious to see, you know, who's going to win in the end. Uh, if you're handicapping the thing today, you'd probably say that Polyev has the big advantage. He's new. He's got wind in his sails. Uh, the prime minister's polling numbers are down right now. He'll have been in office presumably by the time the next election happens, but, you know, for 10 years. That is often a time during which people want to change horses. But you never know. He's won two elections, the last two, uh, that a lot of people thought he had no business winning. And he won those elections with the smallest percentage of the total vote cast in history. So we know the liberal votes more efficient. And we know the conservative, they burn a lot of useless votes in Western Canada where they win ridings by 20, 30 and 40,000 votes. They need to move some of those votes to other ridings in the country if they want to be more competitive. So I think it all just shapes up to, to be one worth watching. That was why I wrote the piece the way I wrote it. Mm. Super interesting. Well, thank you again for making the time, Steve. It's a wonderful book. I learned so much reading it. And thank you for coming on the show. Delighted to be with you. Thanks for the interest. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 